TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to a special edition of The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. In an era in which allegations of fake news are rampant, journalists are increasingly under attack, and the media industry is going through unprecedented and unpredictable upheavals in its business model. We thought it would be great to dig into exactly how the news gets made and who's making it. We know that the press is playing a growing role in shaping public perception of our neighborhoods and cities, which in turn shapes policies that govern everything from the severity of criminal sentences to the conduct of law enforcement to the support we provide to those who come in contact with the criminal justice system. In a special series of podcast episodes, we'll be interviewing the interviewers and looking at the unique role that the media plays in covering the criminal justice system. In this, our second in that four-part series, we interviewed Jessica Pishko. Jessica's a writer in San Francisco. She's a JD from Harvard Law School and an MFA from Columbia University. She writes about prosecutors and their unique position in the criminal justice system uh, and many, many other topics. Her recent piece in The Nation magazine details how statewide prosecutor conferences are actively working to prevent almost all criminal justice reform in states across the country. Jessica's also written for Esquire, Rolling Stone, Pacific Standard, and San Francisco Magazine. Jessica joined us from California via Skype. Thanks so much, Jessica, for joining us via Skype from way out in California. How are things there? It's great, sunny and warm. As always, right? <laughs> As always. <laughs> so you, uh, you are on staff at the Fair Punishment Project. Tell us what that is and what you do there. So the Fair Punishment Project is um, a nonprofit organization out of Harvard Law School. And it has several different uh, wings. So we have one uh, section that's primarily made up of lawyers. That's our legal staff. They do work on a lot of amicus briefs. And another section that we have that's, I think, uh, of new and exciting is our journalist division. So Fair Punishment Project employs right now about four writers um, who are on staff, and I'm, I'm one of them. Um, we have a site called Injustice Today, and we also um, have a sort of column on Slate called Trials and Errors. And one of the things we are doing um, as our project as journalists is basically focusing on prosecutors, um, particularly the actions of prosecutors, which are primarily local issues, right? So what we really aim to do is look at issues happening at the county level and sort of bring some broader perspective um, to some of those problems that, again, tend to be, I, I think, county level issues that are really familiar with people from that region. Um, so for example, I just did a story on injustice today about a pretrial diversion in Mecklenburg County, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Right. So, yeah. So again, that's, you know, pretty, a pretty local specific issue. Uh, every county will have their own pretrial diversion method. Um, so what is interesting about our project, I think, is to try to bring some of those local issues to a, to a more national 
platform so that people could see you know what's really happening on the ground and what impacts a lot of people on a day-to-day basis right right and then just real quick and i'll put it again at the end of the podcast but injustice today is a new uh site with a daily newsletter tell us uh, about subscribing and where people can find that Oh, so right now our site is injusticetoday.com and you can go and it's right now I think we're running it on Medium, which may not mean anything to anybody, but if it does, it's a great platform. (laughs) If it does, it means you can follow our posts. Uh, We could also follow us on Twitter, which I think is fair punishment. And I think on the Medium site, there's also a place where you can sign up for our daily newsletters. We actually have um, daily newsletters, I think some by topic, but we also are doing a few by region. It's one of our new, um, one of the new newsletters. I have not been working on this personally, but I know one of their new moves has been to uh, categorize things by region. So we have like a West Coast letter and a New York letter. Yeah. And I am sure the Tennessee newsletter. <laughs> it's not far behind, is, is, right? We're going to put the Tennessee newsletter next. Of course, of course. So you are in that media side of things, right? Yes, but I'm you, on the media side. But you also have a JD, and you have done some work in criminal justice. What kind of work have you done in criminal justice? Um, you know, I haven't done a lot, and it, and I will freely admit that this was a long time ago. So I, I you know, haven't practiced law in a while, so I'm going to put that out there. Um, just, just so no one, no one thinks I could give a uh, good legal advice. Right. I'm the um, same way. So I, I feel you. <laughs> I did a lot of the work I did. Um, I worked on a few death penalty cases pro bono. Um, I'll throw in a shout out. So my uncle David Pishko is an attorney in North Carolina and I, um, worked for him one summer in law school. We worked on a, a he worked, we worked on a death penalty case together. He does. Um, I think he's affiliated with the uh, Duke's Innocence Project. So he takes on the occasional case for them. Uh, so I, you know, did some of that. As a lawyer, I did a lot of work actually in family court. I did a lot of um, petitions, a lot of VAWA petitions. So a lot of work for women seeking um, legal immigration status who were leaving abusive relationships, a lot of work with custody and children. Yeah. So that kind of intersects with the criminal justice system sure. in, a, in a weird way, right? So I think that, gave, that definitely gave me a, always a lot of interest in kind of these, these places that I think are a lot less explored. Um, I think death penalty cases get, you know, rightfully so, get a lot of attention. Supreme Court cases get a lot of attention. But, yeah. you know, Queen's family court was not the place where people were paying an awful lot of attention to what was going on. Yeah, and, and I think I want to stop here and talk about the, you know, that's a very unique perspective that you bring to reporting because what you're doing now uh, is reporting and you're, you're you know, this is, this is a news site that, that is reporting on justice issues. And so, and typically we think of the media as this, you know, what, fourth estate? Is that right? Is that the right number of state that it's supposed to be that is sort of independent and separate from all these other things? And yet you have this experience and... Uh, and it certainly informs how you report and how you write and how you see uh, the criminal justice system. And that's a that's not unique to Fair Punishment Project and what you guys are doing. But I think we're seeing more and more of it. As you mentioned, you're self-published on on Medium, and you know you send out a daily email. This is you created a media outlet uh, in a way that wasn't possible several years ago. How have you seen that develop? And, and what do you, I guess what is your you know, how do you do that as a, as a former, uh, you know, or someone who practiced and was, you know, committed to, 
the, the independence of this judicial system, but now are reporting. Do, do you get that question? You understand? Yeah, I mean, I do. I get, you know, I sort of get the question a lot. I mean, I think that one thing that can, I mean, on a persona, there's like sort of, I think, a personal to me level. And then I think there's kind of like a broader issue of what's the state of journalism today, um, which I'm not I'm not clear that I'm the, the biggest expert on the state of journalism today, uh, but I can always provide I could always provide my two cents on how to navigate. You have an, you have an opinion. That's why we called you. <laughs> I got an opinion, but, you know, again, no, we'll purport to be experts. So on a personal level, um, I think being a lawyer is great, is, has its great side and its downside. Um, I think one thing that I have to be careful about personally is that because I am a lawyer and because when I interview people or do a project, people know I'm a lawyer. Um, I have to be really careful that people understand that I'm not their lawyer and I'm not their advocate and I'm not, um, if I'm writing a story about someone, I can't, I can't be their lawyer, right? So I can't represent them. I can't be their advocate. Um, I have to, you know, report with honesty, which, you know, can mean that sometimes I have to report on things about people that they don't like or makes them uncomfortable, um, you know, and I think while there's, you know, various ways to navigate that, I do think it can be tricky just to make sure like people's lines, you know, no lines are crossed. Um, I mean, again, I don't practice law, so the division for me is not a huge problem. Um, it's great when I'm talking to lawyers, lawyers like that I understand the law, um, <laughs> it makes them more comfortable. <laughs> they, they don't have to explain, you know, all the bits and pieces to me. So they, they like that. But I, you know, I always worry about people getting confused about that. Um, and I think, you know, on a broader level, you know, in some ways in the last year, like journalism is, it, things are another beast now, right? Like, I think two years ago, when, you know, there was a huge concern about issues of fairness and impartiality and et cetera. And, and I think over the last two years, every single institution has really questioned that. Um, you know, for example, the Washington Post's new motto is democracy dies in darkness, right? I mean, there's sort of, I think, a new... Which, was very, which was very bold. <laughs> like to yeah, right. I mean, that's, I the, first I mean, read that's that. the Washington Post. Right. Yeah. That's the Washington Post, which I think everyone agrees is a standard paper, not advocacy journalism. Right. Um, But that is close to something like what we might say was uh, it was not totally impartial. Right. And so I think like journalism as a whole is kind of questioning what it means to be uh, to be objective. uh, What like what is it that people are trying to accomplish? And, you know, I think that I think the debate is very interesting. Um, I sometimes teach a class in what I call social justice journalism. And when I teach it, I ask people, my students, what do they think? Like, what do they think is the role and what is the right balance? Because I am thinking about it every day Um, on a day to day story basis. uh, What I really think is, am I being fair? Um, You know, is the story honest and fair? And that's sort of the rule I go by and if if what I'm doing is honest and fair and if it also happens to say be you know in this debate we could segue to other things I do right but if if it happens to be critical of district attorney associations 
I feel okay with, with doing that. Um, regardless of whether, yeah, regardless of whether you could say I was objective or not, (laughs) I, you know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a claim to say like, I'm totally unobjective. I wouldn't make that claim, but I would say that I am fair. Um, you know, so that I think is where I, what I aim for is I always aim for fairness. Yeah. And so, um, let's talk then about real, real quickly about a a big uh, piece you wrote earlier in October uh, of this year about prosecutor associations, DA associations, and, and describe to us what those are first, and then we'll talk maybe more about what you wrote. Right. So DA associations is sort of a, oddly enough, sort of a funny thing that people didn't seem to know all that much about until I looked at them. Um, most states appear to have an organization that where the district attorneys of that state, so typically in Tennessee, I, I think this is true, you have a district attorney who is elected in each county, um, and typically they'll form an organization. I mean, each, that would, it's a district here, so it's 31 a, districts. A district. Yeah. A district. <laughs> I have to get my... Yeah, that's no, okay. It's I'll okay. get my lingo. It's a district in New Orleans. It's a parish. Or New well, we, in have the counties, we have counties, but we have 95 of them, and they're divided up into 31 judicial districts. Okay, so like Florida is sort of similar. Yeah, then. exactly. There's that's counties, right. and, the, and there's districts is the way they assign their... Um, their attorneys. So what do they call them then in Tennessee? Are they district attorneys or do they call them? Yeah, that's right. District attorneys general. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they'll form an association, which is kind of on the face of it, not unlike the, the unions formed by police officers or sheriffs or, you know, any other uh, stakeholders, right? They form kind of what might appear to be a union and they get together and, you know, do continuing education, which lawyers have to do continuing legal education. Anyway, um, they might share information about what's going on in their county. They might have uh, conferences, you know, et cetera. There's a National District Attorney Association, which appears to generally include all the district attorneys everywhere in the nation. Um, So, you know, it's sort of like a cross between maybe something like a trade group and a political organization. So the thing I started looking at in in terms of district attorney associations was just how powerful they were politically in some places. Um, It it appeared that in some places, the district attorney association had a lot of political power. um, And while maybe they weren't, uh, you know, sort of donating money or funding candidates, they were backing specific legislation and they had the ear of a lot of people in the legislature which makes sense because, um, you know, in Florida, for example, you have your state legislators and they're really busy. They have to know about criminal justice and street repair and water and property tax, right? So they have all sorts of issues they have to know about. Right. And so the District Attorney Association might go to their state legislatures and legislators and explain to them, you know, what this bill is and why it's good or why it's bad and uh, kind of try to sway their vote. And, and so tell us, I mean, you, you report on a few specific uh, uh, associations and, 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 and these are, you know, representative of nothing more than the three or three or four associations that you report on. But what did you find uh, with those associations and, and their, I guess, strength relative uh, to other uh, interest groups, as it were, in, in the various states where you reported? 
Yeah, well, I think that the issue, uh, so I looked most a lot at Florida and Louisiana were the two big states I looked at. And there, I think the prosecutor associations had a great deal of political power when it came to criminal justice reform. Um, they, both of them, employ a, a, a sort of lobbyist um they have a lobbyist who works at the Capitol who has been the lobbyist there for a very long time. I yeah. forgot how long, but he, both of them had multi-decade, right? So they were, I think, in terms of people on the Capitol, they were what you would say was a fixture on the Capitol, right? Like people knew who they were. Um, they knew all the ins and outs of all the state political machinations, and they were very effectively able to communicate what prosecutor associations wanted or didn't want. Um, and could exert their will. Um, so to kind of give an example that is recent and pretty relevant, uh, Louisiana, for example, the governor, um, John Edwards, sort of invested in a, in a committee um, and created a bipartisan panel to really attempt to reduce both the size and cost of Louisiana's prisons. Um, Louisiana for quite a while has you know, the biggest uh, prison population, the most expensive prisons, right? So kind of a process of decarceration was in the interest of the state. Yeah. Um, and many other uh, red states and blue states have tried to decarcerate, right? Texas has, you know, namely uh, um, Mississippi, you know, has enacted. So this is, uh, I think, a process a lot of states are going through. Um, and so he created a task force that came up with a bunch of suggestions of ways they might revise the law and um, some of them involved, for example, releasing elderly inmates and setting new parole guidelines. And the District Attorneys Association, when, when these sort of ideas came out, the District Attorneys Association just said, we don't, we're not supporting them. Um, they said, we cannot support these. We have serious problems with most of these. Um, and there's a few that we won't support at all, ever. And, and just um, as of a few weeks ago from when we're recording this, I mean, it had come to a pretty screeching halt, as I, as I understand it. Is that, is that right? They brought So basically, they brought the process to a screeching halt. Um, I would characterize kind of politically what they did was sort of exert their political muscle and say, you're not going to pass this without the support of district attorneys and, you know, kind of inserted themselves in the process to decide what would ultimately get passed. And, and I think that was my, my you know, original question was, you know, that's what they can do in, in a lot of states. Is, is that what you found? That's what they can do in Tennessee. I, I mean, I found I think that that's a pretty extreme example that they really, you know, brought the process to a screeching halt um, and made them compromise. But yes, I think in a lot of states, the District Attorneys Association um, has a lot of has a lot of power. Has the, they have the ear of a lot of of a lot of important people. I mean, district attorneys are important. They're you know elected officials. They are vested with a lot of power. And if you are making decisions about criminal justice, this so the idea would go. Who would you believe more than a prosecutor, right? They're they're in they're, you know in most people's minds they're believable people, right? And so if they say, well, this is going to be this law will be a public safety hazard, we can't do this. This is not how our courts operate. I, I think a lot of people will believe them yeah. um, because there is no voice really to the contrary. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's that's valuable reporting, no matter where it comes from. But I do want to get back a little bit to talk about you know the organization that's that's doing this reporting and this type of reporting reporting now. I mean, folks like the Marshall Project, for instance, alongside the Fair Punishment Project. And are there others that I'm that I'm missing when we talk about 
uh, putting out, you know, original uh, reporting on the, these topics? Like pure, like I think pure criminal justice. Right. I think the two, um, I think Fair Punishment and the Marshall Project are the two I would say that are doing all, um, like basically all criminal justice. Um, I think a lot of places are doing, I, I do think, you know, now nowadays criminal justice is an issue that's getting a lot of coverage everywhere. Um, you know, I think like it, the New York times, for example, has excellent people covering yeah. criminal justice. Um, Buzzfeed is covering quite a lot of criminal justice. The yeah. nation, um, which is where I wrote the story for is covering a lot of criminal justice. Um, I think the New Yorker has done the great, the intercept. So I think there's a lot of places that do a lot of criminal justice. Um, I don't know if there's any others that their mission is specifically, all criminal justice, yeah. you know, well, then, all the time. So I guess the, the question would be when we talk about independence and objectivity and fairness, wh- where does the – so we know about the New York Times, right? They have subscribers. They have uh, massive media or massive uh, platforms like the online and their apps and things. Uh, Marshall Project, not so much. You know, Fair Punishment Project, not so much. How do you get funding to do stuff like this? <laughs> so <laughs> getting funding is always the hardest part of everything I can assure you. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure everyone knows, you know, everyone knows getting funding is difficult. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, just, you know, so the Marshall Project for example is is also a nonprofit and I believe they get most of their funding from independent investors. I think Neil Barsky is one of their independent investors. Um who helped, I think, who helped form the Marshall Project, right? And, and similar to the Punishment Project, quite honestly, we're a nonprofit. We get, we get funding from um, people who invest in nonprofits. So like a lot of places, we write grant proposals and, you know, try to get grants. Um, the Nation, similarly, is a nonprofit. So a lot of their funding also comes from grants and grant writing and donations because mm-hmm. they're not a, you know, ad selling organization. Um, and I've written for, you know, I've written for some places that are ad selling, right? Like magazine work, like Rolling Stone or Esquire, or anything that's a more commercial magazine, right? That's sold on a subscription yeah. slash advertising type model. And, and for, um, which for, is different. I've, I'm a little bit familiar with that, um, you know, more traditional avenue of, of reporting and, and, and writing, but in that case, they would pay you as sort of a contractor to write that. Is that correct? Pretty typically, because I'm a freelancer, yes. Yeah. I mean, they will have some staff writers. Um, and I also think, like, criminal, you know, every, I think every publication has the extent to which they want to cover criminal justice, and they can't, they have to cover so many things that you can't cover everything all the time. Yeah. Well, um, so, so that's always a tricky thing. So during this this series that we're doing about, you know, how how reporting gets done on criminal justice and uh, this is sort of, I guess, the what, what I would call the future. You know, it's definitely the present. I mean, you've talked about what's happening already and, the, you know, the deep work that you've done as a, as a reporter. Um, what do you, and then you, we have, you know, we're going to have someone on from a, a very, very established, you know, national uh, media outlet and in a local broadcast outlet and any local established, you know, print outlet. And so you represent something that, is, that you know, again, wasn't, wasn't here, what, three years ago. So what do you see? How do you see this type of, of organization like yours and like the Marshall Project and people like you? Uh, how do you see this changing uh, in the future and, and what does it become? That's a good question. Um, I think one thing 
one thing I'm really interested in, and well, you know, one day we'll see if this can happen, is I'm really interested in right now, like, this sort of perceived division between what we might say is, like, local reporting and national reporting. Um, I find, I think that local, you know, many have written about the problem of sort of the drain of resources for local reporting. Right, um, yeah. Right, like, We've there's not enough that. people... Yeah, there's not enough people. There's not enough people to cover the beat. And I find that there are, but at the same time, I find there are lots of local reporters really, really dedicated to what they're doing. Um, and I think they sometimes, my impression is sometimes I think they feel they're not getting maybe enough support or, you know, it, it's difficult because as a sort of national reporter, I talk to a lot of local reporters and I think they have, they feel that sometimes national reporting is elevating an issue that they care about very much, but isn't doing so in a way that is acknowledging just how much work has to get done locally, right? And I think one thing I would like to see is sort of better um, cooperation between local and national reporters. Uh, I think we all want the same thing, and we all have to figure out, you know, how to how to get basically get that audience, right? I mean, I, I like to think that Fair Punishment Project fits into the the sort of media landscape in a way such that we can do some stories that other places can't. So, uh, you know, for example, a lot of places can't do a story about Charlotte. Uh, they just, right. They just can't, they don't have the space to do a, a story like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can. And so there might be other places doing similar stories, stories locally, but they don't have a national outlet that can do those stories. So I like to think that that's sort of a place where Fair Punishment Project can do is to find a home for, for those stories and to provide, I think, a kind of different analysis, which is also what we try to do. Um, but I also think that there's a place for all sorts of, you know, I, I like to think there's a place for all sorts of media. And I think they all are doing something really valuable and you know, I always have a lot of respect for people I work with, you know, who people I interact with at the Marshall Project or the New York Times who, you know, or the Washington Post who have, you know, really well-established publications backing them, which is also is a great magical thing to have, you know, the backing and support sure. of a <laughs> of institutional publication that will right, believe in you. I think that's, great like they can do things that other people can't do um the nation for me has been great i've written for them quite a lot and they you know as a nonprofit, are also willing to do some things that some you know for-profit publications aren't as willing to do um and that i think is good too like so it's you know it's going to be interesting i, I like to think that the future is going to be more cooperation yes. um i think ProPublica is starting to do some of that uh, cooperating with, I think, local newsrooms. And I, I think you can see that that's, I think we can see that that's the place where places will go. Because if you're a nonprofit, you're very concerned about impact. And I think that impact, a lot of impact happens at the local level, you know, and to yeah. talk about prosecutors, if it's electing a prosecutor, I mean, that is, that is a local level issue. It's a local election. Right, right. That's fascinating. Well, that is a that is some really good insight from someone who knows uh, better than most about what the future of journalism is going to be, and especially as it relates uh, to criminal justice. Uh, we've uh, uh, taken a hit uh, at our local, uh, you know, media outlets as you described, and uh, are more and more dependent on stories like yours and work like uh, the Fair Punishment Project does. So, 
uh, I thank you for that. And I uh, mostly thank you for joining me and for answering these questions. And uh, I'm sorry that you couldn't join me in person and have some central barbecue nachos uh, while we talked. But I, next time I will, I will, I, next time I will bring the nachos. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Jessica, thanks so much for joining me. All right. Thanks, Josh. That was Jessica Pishko in conversation and on the permanent record. Our thanks to Jessica for taking some time out of her sunny and warm day in California to talk to us. You can find her story on the DA associations and their role in criminal justice reform at thenation.com. Sign up for Injustice Today's daily criminal justice-themed newsletter at injusticetoday.com and read more of Jessica's work there. As always, special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, the original theme music for the permanent record. His duo, Me and Leah, have a new record out. You can find it on SoundCloud and Spotify, and uh, they play live all the time around town. Thanks to Gil Worth and Carla Worth for booking at the OAM Network. Find them at theoamnetwork.com. Stream the permanent record there and find lots of other great podcasts. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. You can learn more about our work at our brand new website at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. Give us a rating. Leave us a review. It helps us build our audience. Don't forget to check out the next episode in our special series on the media when Carrie Hayes of Key Public Strategies interviews Eric Barnes of the Memphis Daily News. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.